Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This ad-free episode of NordPod has been made possible by the generous support of our many Rare Disease Day funders. Learn more during this episode. Welcome to the club that you're gonna want to join. We're the voice of rare disease, and this jingle doesn't rhyme. NordPod, NordPod, NordPod. My name is Matthew Zachary, and welcome to NordPod, right here on the Offscript Media Network. Now, I've been advocating on behalf of cancer and rare disease patients for over 20 years. Why? Because I am one. NordPod is the official podcast of the National Organization for Rare Disorders. And a quick reminder before we get started that if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps other listeners like you discover the show. Now, let's get started. Hello, folks. This is Matthew Zachary, and welcome back to another exciting episode of NordPod. On the show today, we got a big one for you. Jan Lacombe is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Eurotis and Rare Diseases International and has been hailed by many as, quote, an enraged rare disease advocate, end quote. So you can imagine that we're going to get along right off the bat. So we're right off the heels of Rare Disease Day 2021 back on February 28th. So we want to thank all of you who participated and remind those who couldn't that anyone can be a rare disease advocate and activist 24-7, 365. So go on and check out rarediseaseday.org. Jan and I talk about the history of rare disease advocacy his personal experience raising a daughter with cystic fibrosis, the lessons he's learned leading this space over the last 30 years, and what we can all look forward to in the next decade. So let's get to it. Jan, thank you so much for coming on NordPod. It is an absolute distinct honor and pleasure to welcome you. Thank you. Very pleased to be with you, Matthew. I'd love to start with your origin story because, you know, we're often born of a condition we never really asked for, and you involuntarily entered the rare disease space through family. Can you talk about that? Sure. I, I say I entered the rare disease community when my first daughter was born in 1990, so 30 years ago, affected by cystic fibrosis. She was quickly diagnosed. I was already working in that field at that time, was working in New York in a small foundation, which was coordinating international research on prevention and early diagnostic of cancer. So we were partnering with NIH, with National Cancer Institute, with some major universities in the US and with the cancer leagues in Europe. 
to coordinate funding of about 20 projects. And uh, because I lost my father and half of my family of different cancers. So that's how I got hooked up to this kind of work, first in research and then to the uh, closer to the people, I would say, when I joined the major AIDS organization, uh, AIDS HIV organization in France uh, later on. And this is when my daughter was born. And immediately I had in my mind my knowledge of the U.S. And particularly, it turns out that I worked with the consultant in Washington who was consultant to Nord on the orphan drug legislation. So I knew about the orphan drug legislation from that moment. And that's why in 93, we, we, with some friends, basically, from few organizations, we decided to initiate a platform of patients uh, organization in Europe in order to advocate for a, a European regulation on orphan medicinal products, so an equivalent to the US Orphan Drug Act. And really the role model for me has been Nord and Abby Myers at the time. So let me ask you this question. You were, we talk about the pre-existing condition, but you were already working, this is a kind of spin on that. You're working in the field of health and research and your daughter is born you're dealing with a diagnosis of CF. Do you feel like your past career experience helped almost predispose you to have a better sense of how to manage and handle the situation? Or is this this case where like, you know, when the doctor gets cancer, that person still doesn't know quite how to navigate the system? Right. No, I see it helped me because I have to, to say that when the doctor from the hospital called me, with the results of the newborn screening, which was just a pilot at that time, I didn't know the name mucoviscidose in French. I never heard that word. And it's only when I started to, to realize that this is called cystic fibrosis. Oh, yes, I know about cystic fibrosis because I knew the U.S. Cystic Fibrosis Foundation already at that time in 1990. So it's um, it helps me because then I took my daughter when she was only two months old to the John Hopkins Hospital, where one of the best experts in the CF clinic was working there. And uh, it helped me also to understand where to find information and what was the state of play of research and the perspective. And just to give two examples is that, you know, my I decided to work in the field of HIV AIDS when I was in New York uh, because I had friends affected and I was so happy to find these community advocacy groups where I could find information about Kaposi sarcoma, about clinical trials ongoing. They were opening their drawers with papers because at that time it was not, as we do today, everything online, right? And so I had that approach that you can appropriate all the knowledge. You don't have to rely only on the scientists and the clinicians. They have their job, obviously, but you can try to own the the knowledge about the disease and and to find your pathway. So that, that's what we did with my partner. We started to look at the experience of the CF clinics. We looked at Denmark because at that time in France, the life expectancy was around 20 years and in Denmark, it was 35 years. So there must be a reason. One of them, for instance, is that the place where you get most infections is when you go to the hospital 
for your regular consultations. So from the moment we understood that from the Danish colleagues, we said, okay, in France, we're going to be really obsessed with that question <laughs> to right. try to avoid any cross infections. So just to give examples. So yes, it has influenced our approach, definitely. And just again, I, I like to just go back to the humanity of this. You know, you're a parent of a newborn. Over the course of the last 25 years, can you speak a bit to the progress made in CF and what that's meant for you and other potential parents that you've met along the way? Yes, it has. The our strategy, because of this international perspective from different countries, has been different than the other parents I knew at that time in France. We have been obsessed, I should say, at the beginning by the autonomy. So we wanted to do the physical therapy ourselves. So there was a professional coming at home. There were even two in order to alternate methods. But we also learned how to do it in order to be able to go over for the weekend or on holiday and not to be stuck and to be able to do it regularly every day. Another thing is that we also were paying a lot of attention to prevention and to have her completely included into the normal system at school and etc. So that that was a different approach, which has become the standard now, obviously, mm -hmm. in France. And what I have observed over the, the years is that more or less every year we've been gaining six months of life expectancy because of the improvement of care. I'm not saying about new treatments, but improvement of the management of the care. So everything that the families can do, that the doctors can do with what they have at hand in terms of antibiotics, in terms of different therapies which can be combined. And that has helped her to have really a very normal life, although with progressively half an hour, an hour, two hours of care per day. But she has been able to go to school all along to be a, a decent, a very decent ski, uh, practice of ski and of other sports and to become an, a lawyer specialized in international affairs and to have a companion and to enjoy life. So it's only recently that she had suddenly, she, her health has deteriorated and she has to have a double line transplant. But yes, so I have seen really this huge improvement over time. And I have seen the expertise on the disease really growing. And I've seen the collaboration also growing across the Atlantic and across Europe. I, I always think it's just so important to realize that, you know, today is today and we know what we're trying to accomplish, but to have the perspective of history as to how far we've really come from those days in the past, you, you never realize that you're either the first to do something or like, why hasn't this become an idea yet? Can you speak to the culture of European healthcare before Eurotas came to be? Because in the irony of you having Nord here in New York and working in this in this community, you have Europe over here across the pond. What was going on then? And how did we take the teachables and the learnings and the research over there? So two, first, U.S. is one big country, but it's one country. It's one system, one language, one culture. Okay, there is the fragmentation of the states and of which may not be exactly the, the same structure from one state to another, but in, in Europe, it's very different. We have 48 countries in Europe, 27 of them, 28 at the time, were part of the 
uh, European Union, and uh, you have 23 languages. So 28 system, 23 languages, and major cultural differences. So when I look back then, the situation of rare diseases, first, the concept itself of rare disease or rare disorders didn't even exist. What you had it was an action for some diseases like cystic fibrosis, like hemophilia, like Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and few others were organized. They had patient groups locally in some of the European countries, and that's it, basically. So you could see major differences across the rare diseases and major differences across the countries in Europe. And probably this is the idea that we brought to Europe and, and to create a better world for people with rare disease in Europe was to say, we're going to have an approach which takes the 6,000 rare diseases together and all Europe together in order to represent the critical mass of 30 million people affected, which cannot be ignored anymore because there is no worse violence than ignorance and indifference, which was the case. So by being together, even though we don't know what the disease of the others exactly are and et cetera, and you get to know it progressively, but from that moment, it was possible to identify what are the common issues that we have in terms of lack of knowledge, lack of research, lack of money to develop treatments, lack of centers of expertise, and et cetera. And can we develop some common approaches to address collectively our issues? You still need the action, don't get me wrong, per disease and per countries, obviously. And that's why we have strongly encouraged over the years the creation of national alliances, so the equivalent of NORD in Germany, in France, in Belgium, Spain, etc. So there is 34 of them across Europe. The only one existing at that, at that time was the one of Denmark. That was the first organization of red disorders in Europe. Not even in the UK they had it. But UK was most more advanced, for instance, in terms of centers of care. In Netherlands also, in Denmark, they were the three countries a bit more advanced than others. But in France, you didn't know where to go, really. And it was only the beginning of the gathering of expertise into clinics for some diseases like SMA or cystic fibrosis. That started only by 92, 93. I mean, without getting into an entire rabbit hole of geopolitics, clearly life before the EU probably was very different. Before we go to break, I really was hoping you could comment on, again, this could possibly a rabbit hole as well, but, you know, Europe very clearly has a different healthcare system than the United States. To what extent that we can look at research versus outcomes versus managed care, the core of just living with a chronic condition or managing a child with a chronic condition. Are, are there any two or three concrete specific things that really, uh, I, I don't know, give rise to how pros and cons on both sides? My experience of the U.S. is that there is the highest expertise which exists, which Unfortunately, in general, it's accessible for the one who can afford. There is exception to that, like the program for the undiagnosed people with rare disease at NIH, where everyone can have access, for instance. But your revenues make a difference. And I have seen people becoming poor because of 
the out-of-pocket expenses they have to cover in the U.S. because sometimes the programs of distribution of medicines are not sufficient. In Europe, we don't have this issue. The solidarity system is strong. The value of solidarity, solidarity in the sense that we have a mutual interest in helping each other, is very strong. It has been very strong over the last 20 years, and I believe it will be strong for the next 10 years. For that reason, we've, for instance, we fought recently at the international level to have a UN resolution on universal health coverage and to have rare diseases included into it. And that was adopted in September 2019. And we fought for it with Nord and with other colleagues from the, around the world. So rare diseases now are included into universal health coverage. What it means for the US or what it means for Europe is that people with rare disease have to be covered in terms of health services responding to their needs. Second, that the services they benefit of needs to be increased. So progressively, it means also like new treatments or new diagnostic. And three, that out-of-pocket expenses need to be reduced to the minimum. So that's a commitment. And even the United States have accepted this text from the UN. So I'm hopeful that things can evolve positively in that sense in the U.S. Not to say that the system in Europe would be better or worse because there is a pro and cons on the two parts of the pond. There is much more dy dynamism, for instance, in the U.S. in terms of research, in terms of investment for the development of therapies and a more rapid transfer from science to application or the digital application at the moment also, which are a major change. So that's a second concrete area for Europe where we, we really focusing. But what we try to provide in Europe is a very structured healthcare system. One example which I think illustrates that is that we've been able to launch in 2017, so just three years ago, 24 European reference networks of rare diseases. Each network covers all countries of Europe and covers a group of diseases like rare lung cancers, rare kidney cancers, rare blood cancers, etc., rare metabolic diseases. And there is not one rare disease which is being left out or left behind. Back with our guest after the break. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Nord would like to thank our gold, silver, and bronze Rare Disease Day sponsors which supported today's episode, including GlaxoSmithKline, Alexion, Astellis, Biogen, Biomarin, Horizon Therapeutics, Sanofi Genzyme, Takeda, Amgen, Apelis, Beringer Ingelheim, Chemocentrics, CSL Bering, Insight, Ipsen, Malincrot, Moderna, Momenta, a Janssen Pharmaceutical Company, Pfizer, Sobe, Spruce Biosciences, and Vertex. So Jan, we're recording this after Rare Disease Day 2021 on the 28th of February, but I think it's important, A, to acknowledge people who did participate and thank them for their advocacy and their efforts, but I think it's really also important to tell people who maybe didn't know about it or like have that, uh, I missed out, what can I do now? You can be a rare disease advocate activist year-round. It's not like rare disease just like stops on February 28th. Um, can you discuss the history of rare disease day? It really is like this unification. It's so important. And, uh, you know, equity and equality were like two words that came into play this year. Talk us yeah. through what you've seen as this evolution of national solidarity. We started the rare disease day in 2008 with some national alliances in Europe. The first thing was really to rally basically, to raise awareness to policymakers and to the public, but also to give a sense to the different patient groups and families with such a large variety of rare diseases and the healthcare professional that they are part of the same community. The, we started with 18 countries participating. In 2009, uh, United States joined with North North has picked up on the campaign and has really developed it very well in the U.S. And over the years, we've seen the campaign growing in, in more countries, but also in the number of events organized in each of these countries and in terms of the type of activities. So some of the key things is clearly public awareness. The second is reach out to policymakers to promote the, the issue of rare disease or specific proposals. And then after you have a lot of activities that goes from education to conferences to march, marching through the streets or things like that. And in 21, we just had 103 countries participating. We had new countries like Mali and Nicaragua, for instance, participating for the first time. And all the materials have been translated in 40 languages, which includes obviously English, Spanish, French, or Italian but also Arabic, Hindi, Mandarin, Hebrew, uh, Japanese, so all, all as many languages as needed to, to run the, the campaign. And 
you may have seen the what was the official video uh, of this year campaign with the story of six patients from six different continents with six different rare diseases, and one of them being affected by sickle cell anemia in the U.S., a teenager. And that's to illustrate what we have in common in spite of very different experiences. And yes, the campaign is not only one day or one week. In fact, we, we are training as uh, Northern. We're training patient advocates during the week of the Rare Disease Day in Brussels and around Europe uh, in order to make them better advocates to, after that, advocate their policymakers locally in their country, but also at the European level. They are members of European Parliament or commissioners or whoever. So it's it's a constant campaign. And w- one key element, which I think will speak to you, Matthew, with your uh, history as a as a cancer uh, survivor, when I, is is that this year we're focusing much more on the young patient advocates. I think there is a fantastic energy and and capacity now in the last few years from young patient advocates who have developed their social media and they have a very personal way of communicating. And that's great because then they can reuse their way with their own words and their own values, uh, the the themes of of equity and reducing inequalities uh, for the Rare Disease Day. And they can do that all year long. Yeah, and the website is rarediseaseday.org. It lives 24-7, 365. Anyone can go there. I can't speak enough to the fact that, you know, most people, and this is maybe just bell curve, aren't born advocates. Advocates can be born if you're just inherently precocious, you know, like someone like me who just doesn't like anything and questions everything. But the idea that there is training and education where it can be instilled upon you how to tell your story, how to speak to legislators. That is such an extraordinary funnel system that I don't think has truly been, I say weaponized with a with an asterisk because that could be a bad word, in, 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 in a way that has truly manifested like the next generation of young adults who need to be rare cancer and rare disease advocates. Yes, absolutely. You know, the, we, we're investing heavily on, on trainings and capacity building. We, we had the chance to be part of the European regulatory system. So I was one of the three first patient representatives to be part of it. And when you work into the system, into scientific committees like that, and I was the vice chair, elected vice chair, one of them, you obviously you become a focus point, right? Everybody's turning to you like, okay, you, 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 you know a lot. And, and, but what's the point? What's the point? The point is to open the doors and the window of the institution to many patient advocates to be able to speak about their disease, to bring their own expertise of experience. And that's what we did. So we've trained over 400 patient advocates on regulatory affairs, drug development, uh, clinical trials, access to medicines. And, and we're doing that in different areas. I think that's so essential because exactly you cannot, you don't need to reinvent the wheel and you don't need to to kill yourself in try, in finding different information, you can. It's already a lot of work to go through these trainings and information, but it's all structured and organized by some groups in the U.S. and in Europe. So that's that's fantastic. I'm very proud, for instance, that we have 300 volunteers at the European level. That means 300 people with different disease, different culture and languages, able to work together on 
on rare disease across, including all the 200 rare cancers, working together at the European level. And that is possible because of the trainings and then because of some processes of work to work collectively together and be well supported. But it's um, now there is a new frontier that, and the rare disease they show us the past is to help to the, the patient advocates to emerge in many more countries and many more diseases around the world. So again, past is prologue, but now we're looking at the next decade and you have an initiative for 2030. Let's talk about Rare Diseases International and the International Rare Diseases Research Consortium. Lots of acronyms there, but it's all for good. Yes, it's great. We, we started in 2009 by the International Consortium for Research on Rare Diseases, which since the beginning brought together the European Union and some of its member states together with NIH. But now there is also the Japanese organization, the Chinese, the Brazilian, so many countries around the world. What it means is that then these member states are able to adopt a common strategy around rare disease. And it does make sense because for 5,000 of these rare diseases affects less than one in a million in the world. So there is only a global strategy which can work. So adopting common orientations, common policy, some standards, common approaches on the funding strategy, like funding registries, natural history study, new clinical endpoints, etc., or, or patients' uh, reported outcome measures. So all these approaches are, are essential. We've created, after that, Rare Disease International, which is really a global alliance of patients' organizations. It brings together the national alliances and the international federations of specific rare diseases. We founded it together, so it's yours, together with NORD, together with CORD in Canada, together with Chinese org uh, and, and with the Japanese patient uh, association, with the Russian patient association. So we all came together to, to create this organization, which now has 70 members. I'm very happy with that. I think we have today all the national alliances almost in the world and, and progressively most of the international federations and particularly the most mature and experienced like Hemophilia and Duchenne, for instance, or, or Padawili and few others, which are more advanced than others who don't have resources and are very new in spreading their, their cause around the world. So this is, this is making a, a, a huge difference. And we can now promote the issue of rare disease within the UN system. So why the United Nations? How, how that, is that helpful? We believe it is, because if the General Assembly adopts a resolution on rare diseases, it's recognized that there is 300 million people out there who are affected by these diseases, that they deserve to be identified and recognized uh, rather than being left in the dark, that they also don't deserve discrimination and stigmatization, which is the first main issue for people with rare disease in the world, outside of all more advanced countries. And it also shows that the, the, the countries should develop national strategies. And also that the UN, through the World Health Organization or through the UNESCO and other institutions, can integrate rare disease into their programs where it's relevant. So that's, that's where we want to go in order to uh, consolidate, I would say, the, the, the movement internationally and make it more sustainable. Yeah, I mean, there's just a genuine 
I mean, bipartisanship, like who's going to come on the other side? No, we want more stigmatization. Like this is clearly something <laughs> that makes sense to lots of people. I, I've heard you described as an enraged rare disease advocate. And while you don't sound enraged right now on this interview, I get the fire in your stomach. I get the fire that you're working with and the unilateralness of how we can actually do something that matters to everyone. Can you point to any one or two specific milestones? And we're talking 30 years of you like running this fire any one or two specific milestones, maybe the Orphan Drug Act, that you can say that was huge change for the planet? In fact, I'm happy to have more than three, really, because I, in terms of legislations, we have helped adopt in Europe the orphan drug legislation in Europe in 2000. Then 2006, the pediatric medicines legislation, so the clinical trial for children and market authorization. Then the year after, the European regulation on gene and cell therapy, which is called advanced therapies. Then in 2011, it was the directive, which is a legislation in Europe for patients' right to cross-border healthcare. And that includes the European Friends Network that I just mentioned a moment ago. And the legislators, when they adopted it, had no idea of how are we going to turn that into <laughs> the embryo uh, of a new healthcare system for Europe with these 24 networks? So these are concrete elements. I can see the number of medicines approved, 130 medicines approved in Europe. I can see the huge uh, potential of research with uh, 2,000 products under development or which have been under development, a massive increase of funding in research in Europe. Because advocacy is not only about legislation, it's also about budget, about appropriation of budget, about infrastructures, etc. I can mention also the fact that in Europe, every country now has a national plan or strategy on rare diseases, which includes centers of expertise, registries, which includes access to healthcare rights and services. So there is some really strong, uh, interesting outcome. And we are at the turning point also for the for the next years, for the next 10 years in that area. Well, to my European counterpart as a enraged rare disease advocate, Jan Lacam <laughs> is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Eurotis and Rare Diseases International. I'm sure all of our listeners want to send our love and wrap a giant hug around your family and your daughter. Thank you so much for coming on NordFund. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. It was a pleasure to be part of it. That's all for today. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. NordPod is a product of the National Organization for Rare Disorders and Offscript Media. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Leslie Nordstrom. Andrew McDowell is our senior producer. Valerie Don Francesco is our marketing manager. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary and the post-production team at Offscript Media. Our theme music is by the Salvatones. Learn more about the music of the Salvatones at salvatones.org. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit nordpod.org.